Welcome again to Afraid of Foursquare. My name is Blake Barnes, and I am the lead pastor. For those of you who are joining us, maybe here or online, we're so glad that you're here with us. You caught us on a great Sunday. We're starting a new series through the book of Daniel, and it's called Exiles. And uh, I want to first open up in prayer, and I want you to know, I, wa I wanted to preface this message to say that the book of Daniel, I've been pouring over the book of Daniel for the last couple weeks, and it is, it is convicting me. It is drawing me closer to God, and this is my heart for this church, is that as we go through the book of Daniel, we would learn to be more and more faithful to God. But this book is full of challenges, and I want to preface this message by saying that today, I might step on some toes. <laughs> I, this, th this might challenge some of you, but I want you to know uh, from the bottom of my heart how much uh, this message is coming from a place of love and a place of compassion for you. And I'm so thankful for, the Lord, for what the Lord has been doing in my heart as we've been reading this. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, we'll be there in just a minute. I'm going to give some background, but first let's open up in prayer and then ask the Lord to open up our hearts and to transform our lives as we hear this message. Jesus, we love you and we thank you, God, that you have given us your word and you've given us a book in scripture about what it looks like to remain faithful to you in the midst of a pagan society, in the midst of a godless culture. Lord, would we learn the lessons from the book of Daniel? Would it minister to our hearts? Would it challenge us? Would it make us uncomfortable, Jesus? And would it push us closer to your presence? This is what we ask you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be in this series for uh, six to eight weeks. I'm really not sure how long we're going to be in here. We're going to take this probably one chapter at a time. And um, the book of Daniel is a fascinating book. But let me start uh, by saying what Daniel is not. What the book of Daniel is not. The book of Daniel is not an adventure story. It is full of, of adventure. It is a Sunday school teacher's paradise because it is full of just wonderful adventure stories of fiery furnaces and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel on the lion's den. And I remember reading these stories, hearing these stories at Sunday school, and the core message through all these stories were it was, if you remain faithful to God, he will always deliver you from trouble. That was, the main, that was the main theme that I learned. But as we read this book, we know that that is not always true. Because the book of Daniel is a book about these faithful men who love God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. These are faithful men of God that loved him. Yet the Lord allowed them to be taken from their homes and made slaves and servants to a Babylonian empire. So bad things are happening to these good people. The book of Daniel is not an adventure story. The book of Daniel is not, as well, it's not a prophetic manual. A lot of people turn to the last uh, four or five chapters of Daniel as this prophetic guide for what is going to happen during the end times. And let me, let me clarify by saying that we should seek to learn all there is to know about the last days. We should seek to know what is going to happen. I think it's good to have a healthy eschatology, uh, a theology of the end times. It's a very good thing. But the book of Daniel is not for that purpose. The book of Daniel was written to a people who were not in their homeland, and it was to give them hope and instruction for how to live in the meantime while they're waiting for their home. The book of Daniel is a book for exiles, and it was written 
to show us how to remain godly in a godless world. How many of you know we live in a culture, I don't think I have to put these pieces together, we live in a world, we live in a culture that is so, uh, that could care less about God, that could care less about the Bible, that don't uh, listen to his ways, that don't listen to his voice. So how, when we are in the midst of it all, when we're encouraged to participate in the culture of the day, how do we remain faithful to God? Well, the book of Daniel is here to show us how these men of God not only uh, survived a pagan culture, but they thrived in a pagan culture. They thrived in Babylon. They were appointed as heads, as, as, the, as the ears to the kings of Babylon, and the kings listened to them. They were given influence. They were given authority. The book of Daniel was written to show how to remain godly in a godless world, and there's many themes in the book of Daniel. There's themes of God's faithfulness. There's themes of his sovereignty. There's themes of, 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 there's dreams and there's visions and there's so many good things in this book. But what we're really going to focus on through this series is that, is that idea of how do we, as followers of Jesus, both honor those in authority and also critique the idolatry and the paganism in our world today. And the book of Daniel is here to show us that. It's an interesting book because Daniel is divided into two main sections. And if you've ever read the book of Daniel, it's kind of clear where this, these two sections split. The first seven chapters of the book of Daniel is all about Daniel's life and his stories. It's these uh, accounts of things that he was involved in. And the last half of the book of Daniel, chapters 8 through 12, are all about his visions of the end times or, or these visions of these beasts and these metals. And, and, and he has all these dreams and these visions. And um, the language of this book, many of you may know this, that the book of Daniel is an interesting book because it was written in two separate languages. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, which was the Babylonian uh, common language at the time. And the rest of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew. So it really parallels the fact that Daniel is, is, has, is, is in the culture. He's adopted the language. And, uh, and the book of Daniel really shows that his journey out of Israel and into Babylon, where he writes a lot of this book in Aramaic. Uh, before we read Daniel 1, let me give you some, some background. This is what's happening in the time of Daniel. So in Genesis, God gives Abraham, this is kind of a, a history lesson. Is that okay if we kind of go into a little bit of a history lesson here? In the book of Genesis, God gives Abraham a promise that he is going to take Abraham's family, and Abraham's family is going to become the people of Israel, and God is going to take them as their own. And we see through Genesis and Exodus and Joshua that God goes with Israel, that he delivers them out of Egypt. He leads them through the desert and into the promised land. And through the whole book of Joshua, we see God mightily uh, supporting Israel and advancing them and telling them to take territory. And so God is on their side and the nations are fearful of Israel because God is on Israel's side. But then years and years go by and after Daniel and, or excuse me, after David, King David and his son Solomon become rulers of Israel, the kingdom of Israel splits into two, they, they split along geographical and tribal lines. The ten northern tribes of Israel um, are, are, are one big group, and then there's a, a southern group, it's the Judah and Benjamin, and they are the, the southern group of Israel. Well, the northern group, the ten tribes up top, they start worshiping other gods. 
they start practicing idolatry. They let go of their, of their faithfulness to the, to the law, uh, what God has instructed them to do, and the Lord allows Assyria to come and take over the ten northern tribes of Israel. Well, not long after that, uh, Judah, despite having seen what happened to their brothers up north, they do the same thing. They, they accept uh, uh, idol worship, they, they abandon scripture, they abandon the law, and God allows, Daniel chapter 1 says that God allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in and conquer, uh, and, and conquer the king of Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. This is the first attack on Jerusalem from Babylon. He destroys the temple in Jerusalem, and he takes from the temple these holy artifacts, these golden cups and all these, these holy objects from the temple, and he brings them back to his temple in Babylon where he worships his gods. And uh, instead of of killing everybody. This is what the Babylonian mindset was. So we're going to take thousands of Israelites captive. We're going to bring them back to Babylon. And instead of killing them, we want them to love Babylon. We're going to, we're going to introduce them to the finest entertainment. We're going to introduce them to the finest wine, the best food. And we want them to embrace the culture of Babylon. We want them to become Babylonian. We want them to worship our gods. We don't want them to ask any questions about whether it's right or wrong. We're going to determine that for them. We want them to become part of our culture. And this is where the book of Daniel takes place. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Ezekiel is also one of those exiles that are taken into Babylon and they're wanted by Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar to participate in Babylonian culture. Well, there's a couple responses that the Israelites had to King Nebuchadnezzar's idea. The first response was that some Israelites, they resisted. They revolted. They drew up arms. They said, no, we're going to fight back. And they became, they just wreaked havoc on the city. And, and uh, there was another group of people, some Israelites, they withdrew. They put themselves into little holy huddles. And they didn't talk to anybody else except the fellow Israelites. They didn't associate themselves. They just withdrew. They kind of went into hiding. Aren't these responses kind of familiar to the way that we respond sometimes to the culture? We want to fight back. We want to raise our voices, right? We want to resist. We want to stick it to the man, right? And some of us, we just want to go to our Bible studies. We don't want to talk to anybody who's in the world. We don't, we don't want to associate with that. We just want to, we want to hang out with fellow Christians, there was another response where some people just adopted the lifestyle. They adopted Babylonian ways. They worshiped their gods. They did what everybody else was doing. They didn't ask any questions about it. They just became Babylonian. Don't we see that as well in our culture? People just, they just adopt the lifestyle. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they live completely different, right? They're only a Christian by name. <clears throat> they don't live the life of a Christian, but Despite all of these ways to live as a response to, to Babylon's wishes, there was another way. There was the way of the exile. There's a way to live in a pagan culture that still honors God. And we see this. This instruction is actually given from Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 4 through 9. The Lord tells Jeremiah this. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 9. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. But here's the key. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will also prosper. The instruction from the Lord. Jeremiah goes on to say, however, don't worship their gods. Don't serve their gods. Don't worship their idols. Stay, stay in the world, but not of the world. Stay separate. I like to think of it as a batch of cookie dough. Some of you are like, where are you going with this, Pastor Blake? Well, many, many of you probably don't know this, but I love to bake. I love to bake. And I love to make chocolate chip cookies. But how many of you know that what really makes that cookie dough stand out is when you add those chocolate chips into the bowl. Now those chocolate chips, they don't melt into the mix. They don't just become this, this you know, chocolatey goo, but the, the chocolate chips, they stand out. They're separate from the cookie dough, but they enrich the whole recipe, right? They make it better. That's kind of how we are supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to be in the culture, in the world, but separate from the world. We are the ones that are supposed to be the influencers, the ones that show people the light of Jesus. We're supposed to be in the world. And so it's this mixture. The way of the exile is this mixture of submission to authority Submission to where God has you because God has you here for a reason, but it's also this attitude of resistance against idolatry and paganism, and we're called to critique culture. And so living that in balance is really a tension. It's trying to figure out how do I live this tension? How do I do this in a way that doesn't push people away and make them think that I'm some hyper-religious person who's just, you know, cramming Jesus down their throat. But how do I do it in a way that, that is informative, that is loving, that shows them who Jesus is? How do I make my life this, this, both, this lifestyle of submission and resistance? Jesus modeled this kind of submission when he was on the earth. He, he submitted to authority, but he was also critiquing the culture. We see in Matthew that he instructs his followers to give to Caesars what belongs to Caesars and give to God what belongs to God. And he taught you should love your enemies. You should love those who hate you. But then we also see Jesus turning tables over, right? And, and calling out the idolatry that's happening in the temple. We see him critiquing uh, power, critiquing the idolatry of power that, we, that, that the people had and that the Pharisees had. And ultimately, it cost him his life didn't it? So let's hop into Daniel chapter 1. I know that was a long introduction. That was a long backstory, but I wanted to provide some background for, for as, as we go into Daniel chapter 1. So are you there? All right, let me get there. Here we go. We're going to start. We're going to start at verse 3, and we're going to read all the way through it. It's 21 verses. We can do it. Then the king ordered Ephanaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official, gave them new names. This is important. 
to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved. Look to the person next to you and say, resolved. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and gave their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Thanks a lot, Daniel. <laughs> to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of that time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Wow. Not only did Daniel and his friends survive this testing they thrived they were faithful to the convictions that god had gave them and they were given influence because of it they were they were made as the example for all but babylon babylon has a scheme for for these men just like babylon has a scheme for you they have some things that they want to do they want to change who you are and the, and the culture of today wants to draw you in, and Babylon, throughout the entire book of the Bible, Babylon has really made this archetype of evil. It's this symbol of evil throughout the Bible, and we see in Revelation, it talks about Babylon as this ultimate evil, and, and we see in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, it's just this picture of ultimate evil. And so the message of Babylon is that we still live in Babylon today. We still are surrounded by the culture of Babylon, by paganism, by idolatry, where, where sin is not only tolerated, but sin is celebrated. It's celebrated in our culture today. And, the, and Babylon has some schemes for your life. The first thing that Babylon wants to do, the first plan that, the Babylon, ha that Babylon has for you, is that Babylon wants to rename you. Babylon wants to label you. We see in this story, the first thing that Babylon did to Daniel and his friends was they renamed them. They wanted their allegiance to be with Babylon. And their Babylonian names were in direct contrast to their Hebrew names. And it was an insult to, to their God. They, was, they were trying to mock their heritage. They were trying to mock their origin. They were trying to mock God. And so they changed Daniel's name. Daniel's name means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar. 
And Belteshazzar, it means a lady, or it means to protect the king. And so they actually changed the gender of Daniel's name from a man to a woman. And what they did was they, they changed the focus of Daniel's name from God to man, where Daniel's name meant God is my judge. It put the focus on him. And now the, 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 the focus is on man, that I have to serve and protect the king. I have to protect the king. And it also portrays God, uh, Daniel's name, that Daniel, Daniel's name means that God is my judge. He's all-powerful. He has all authority. He's all-knowing. And they change it to God needs a protector. God needs somebody to look after him. And so they're mocking Daniel's heritage. They're mocking uh, who he came from, and they're mocking God himself. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh has been gracious, and they changed his name to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. Mishael, his name means who can compare to God? No one. And they changed his name to Meshach. I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Azariah, his name means Yahweh has helped. And they changed his name to Abednego, the servant of Nebo. And Nebo was a Babylonian god. They're mocking these men by trying to rename them. You know, names are powerful. Names have an impact on your life. I don't know if parents, you've named your children and you've seen their children really grow into their names. My son Gideon means valiant warrior, and there, uh, there is a warrior inside of him, and I can see how God is taking this, this warrior and shaping him. And if you know my daughter Zoe, her name means abundant life, and if you've ever been around Zoe, she's exactly that. She's just a little too much life sometimes. She's just really, she's really all over the place. And then Vivian, her name means lively or life-giving, and that's our daughter Vivian. She's just lively and life-giving. And names are important. Names, names affect you. I remember growing up, and uh, I had all of these friends whose names came straight from the Bible. I had a, a Matthew friend and a Peter and a John. And, and I noticed all their names are from the Bible. And I started thinking, I don't remember seeing Blake in the Bible. So I went to my mom, and I said, Mom, is Blake in the Bible? And she goes, no. And I said, well, all my friends have, have Bible names where did you come up with my name? And she goes, well, I was really into a soap opera in the 80s uh, called Dynasty, and you were named after Blake Carrington, the main character of that show. Does anybody remember Dynasty in here? Okay, we got some. I, I caught you, all you soap, soap opera watchers. No, I'm, I was like, oh, thanks, Mom. That's really meaningful. But what I did is I, I began to just ask God, Lord, what do you, what do you say over my life? Who, who am I? And I was reading different definitions of the name Blake. You know, you, know, you go to all, sometimes you, you'll find a name and you go to different places and there's different definitions. And so uh, a lot of definitions will say like dark or, and attractive or something like that. But I went to, I found one place and I, I haven't found it since. So it probably doesn't even mean this. But the Lord spoke to me when I saw this. It said, Blake means white as snow or innocent. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, this is what I've called over your life as I, I want you to be innocent. I want you to be white as snow. And wouldn't you know that the one thing the devil has always tried to take away from me is my innocence, my entire life. That's always been the attack on my life. The devil tries to go after the identity that God has purposed and placed into you. That's the one thing that he tries to steal. That's the first thing he tries to steal away from you. That's the first thing he tried to steal from Adam and Eve. Is when the Bible says that God created Adam and Eve in his image, the serpent came to him and said, God, 
God said that? Oh, you're not going to die. In fact, he knows that if you eat of the fruit, you are going to be like him. They were already like God. And the devil was trying to convince them that they weren't like God, that they were orphans. The devil wants to come after your identity. He wants to rename you. He wants to relabel you. The names you allow to label you often title the scripts that you live by. Some, some of us, at a young age, we were called stupid by our teachers or our parents. Some of us have been called worthless or unattractive. And those are the scripts that we have lived by for years and years and years. And that, oh, I'm not good at reading or I'm not good at math. My, this person said I was stupid. This person said I was worthless or I was unattractive. And we live by those scripts. We allow those scripts to determine the course of our life. That's exactly what the enemy wants for you. He wants to take away your identity and give you a new identity, the identity of the culture, the identity of the world. You have a God-given identity that the world is trying to strip from you and God has purposed you for a destiny and Babylon wants to take that away from you. The culture that we live in is made to take that away from you, to strip you of your God-given identity and if we're not careful, we will allow them to call us by that name. We will allow them to relabel us, to give, them, give us a new identity. Babylon wants to rename you. The second thing, Babylon wants to claim you. Not only uh, does it want to label you a Babylonian, it wants you to think like a Babylonian. It wants you to think like the world. Babylon says, let me define what is good for your life by making you live for what makes you happy. What makes you happy? That's what you should pursue. It doesn't matter if God says it's wrong. If that's the case, if it makes you happy and God says it's wrong, well, then God must be wrong because it's making you happy. Doesn't God want you to be happy? It wants you to think like a Babylonian. The world wants to distract you with everything it has to offer so that you never have time to discover for yourself what God thinks is good. You can determine that or let us determine that for you. We'll, we'll tell you what's good and what's not. Just follow the masses. That's the third thing. Babylon wants to rename you, wants to claim you, and Babylon wants to tame you. Not only does it want to label you a Babylonian, not only does it want you to think like a Babylonian, but it wants you to act like the culture. It wants you to act like a Babylonian. Just go with the flow. Follow what everybody else is doing. Just go with the masses. See, the world is changing. The world is changing. People are opening up their minds. Their, their opinions are changing, so your opinions have to change too. Your convictions have to change too. Just go with the flow. Just act like everybody else. And if you don't act like everybody else, we're going to pin you down, and we're going to call you a bigot, and we're going to say that you are not loving because your Bible says that God's loving, so you better think the way that I think. Because if you don't think the way that I think, you're not loving. Whew. It's scary because we live in a culture where I don't believe that, that Christians in America are truly experiencing persecution yet. We're experiencing pressure. We, we, there's pressure over the followers of Jesus. There's not persecution yet. But there will be one day, and will you be ready for it? There will be one day, and will your convictions be set? Will you have convictions that come from the Bible, or will you cave and just... Go with the flow, because you don't want to cause any trouble. So how do we live in this Babylon? How do we live in a, in a, in a culture that wants to 
label us, that wants us to think like them and act like them? How do we live the way of the exile? I have three things for you this morning. Three things that we as exiles should learn to do in this culture. And I I pray that these are helpful for you. As exiles in modern-day Babylon, we must first decide before the dilemma. We have to decide before the problem comes up. We have to have conviction before the problem arises. In Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved to not defile himself with the royal food and wine. See, Daniel had already determined in himself. He already had the conviction that I am not going to go this way. I am not going to do this. He had a conviction that came from Scripture. The Lord had instructed Israel, had instructed the Jews to not eat certain foods, and Daniel wanted to obey the word of the Lord, to listen to God. He had a conviction. He decided before the dilemma. He didn't try to rationalize it. He didn't try to see how close to the line he could get before he sins. How many of us do that? I wonder how close I can get before I actually step into sin. I wonder what I could watch or what I could do or the people. I wonder what I can get away with. You know, there's some gray in there. Bible says what's right and wrong, but I'm sure there's some gray. Let's try to get as close as we can before messing up. No, Daniel didn't do that. He didn't say, oh, maybe I'll just have a piece of bacon but not drink the wine. Right? I'll just have a, just one piece. Just one piece of bacon. That way they don't get in a fuss, you know, and I can go on living my life. No, he had a conviction. I will not defile myself. He had already made it up in his mind. Many people I know now have come to accept that the Bible is an absolute truth. That it's an outdated book with outdated recommendations for how to live. That the world is changing, so the Bible needs to change too. Right? This This is something, the Bible is something that God wrote for an ancient culture, an ancient civilization. Listen, God didn't put these things in place to hinder you, to tie you up. He put these these laws in place, and and let let me say this, we're under a new law now. We're under a covenant of freedom. Christ died, and he rose again, and we belong to him now. But that does not give us the, the, the ability or, or, or the go-ahead to go ahead and sin. But Christ, Jesus, he didn't die, and God didn't give us these laws to bind you. He gave you these laws to free you because he knows the best way to live. He knows which decisions are going to lead to life and which decisions are going to lead to death. And he says, if you do these things, it's going to lead to death. So just don't even go there. But like us, and, and if you're a parent, you know you have kids who just... You, all, you got one kid who always just needs to figure out the hard way, right? They just need to make the wrong decision to figure out what that consequence is. God wants to free you. We have people now that would say, well, I believe in God. I believe he's all-knowing, and I believe he desires the best for me. But when he created sex to be solely for a husband and a wife, did he really expect me to wait for marriage to be intimate with somebody? Come on. I know I just dropped the S word in the room. So we're really, we're family now. <laughs> we, we, we have people who think, I know scripture paints same-sex marriage in a bad light, but it also ta- talks so much about love. And I feel like the Bible is outdated. I feel like the Bible wants to say something else nowadays. If you would just, just give it a chance. And maybe we, can, maybe we can look at those scripture that are really blatant about same-sex marriage. Maybe we can try to find a new interpretation of that. Because maybe God meant something else. Or maybe 
I know the Bible says that out of the heart the mouth speaks, but that's just the way I talk. Sometimes I drop the F-bomb, you know? Sometimes I say bad words, and that's just, you know, everybody else is doing it. It's just, it's fine. It's no big deal. Now, I'm not trying to be hyper-religious. I'm not trying to be legalistic here, okay? I'm trying to reveal out of compassion and love, church, just know my heart that, that I, 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 I have a heart for people. I have a heart for them to see Jesus, and I'm not trying to be hyper-spiritual or, or, or legalistic. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is convey that we've come so far as a culture. The, the, the world has come so far from knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong to just making this big gray area. And you can live inside of this gray area all you want because nobody really knows what's right and wrong. We do know. His word says we know. But are we going to be a people of God that live with conviction? Or are we going to allow the world to determine it for us? Because It's not us versus them. This, this whole thing, this, what, what I'm talking about this morning, it's not about us versus them. Because Jeremiah, the way of the exile is to seek the prosperity and the peace of the world. To, to seek the prosperity of our city, of our nation. Is to pray to God for it and hope that it prospers. We have so many people that are praying that, man, I hope the evil get theirs soon. I hope it all comes crashing down and goes to destruction and Jesus comes back and saves us all, but I hope everybody else dies. That's not the attitude we're supposed to have as followers of Jesus. The attitude we're supposed to have is I want to seek the prosperity of my nation. I hope it prospers because the scripture says if it prospers, I will prosper. There's a way to live in the world and not be of the world. There's a way to show the light of God in a, in a world that doesn't care about God. My wife and I, I remember a time where uh, we went to go see a movie with some friends and family. And uh, there was probably eight or ten of us. There was lots of friends and family. And we walked into the theater and the movie started. And we, ten minutes into the movie, decided this is not a movie we should be in. And we looked at each other, and it was actually my wife who started it, so kudos to her. She looks at me, and she goes, we should go. And I was like, kind of thinking, well, what are your, what's your family and your friends going to think, you know, if we get up and walk out? And she goes, no, we should just go. And so we walk, got up, and we left, and we just waited outside of the theater until the movie was done. And when it was done, they came out and said, why'd you guys leave? And we just said, we just felt like that's, that's not what we want putting into our minds. We don't want that in our lives. And we began to live, show them what those convictions are. That this is a line that I'm not going to cross. I'm not going to go there. And I think, I think when people do that, when you have people in your life who show you that line and when show you conviction, you admire those people, don't you? You go, wow, how come I didn't have the courage to do that? I want to be the person who does that. I want to live with conviction. What are your convictions? What are your core convictions? If you don't know what they are, then you won't know how to respond when you're faced with a dilemma, when you're asked a question, when you're asked to do something or participate in something or endorse something. If you don't have those convictions and they have to come from God's word, you can't determine them on your own. They have to come from God's word. What are your convictions? Get desperate about reading the Bible and allow God to reveal what is true, what is right, and what is lasting. Decide before the dilemma. Here's the second thing. Seek influence. As exiles, 
As people who follow Jesus in the midst of a godless world, we are called to seek influence, just like Daniel did. Submit to authority in humility. Daniel served under four different Babylonian kings, and he submitted to their rule. And he submitted to them unless it was in opposition to what God had, had instructed them to do. But he served them well. In fact, we see in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he has a dream of a great tree and it's cut down and he's, he's disturbed by this dream and Daniel comes in and he says, Daniel, would you tell me the meaning of this dream? And Daniel says, King, this dream is about you, but I wish it wasn't. I wish this was about your enemies. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who grabbed him from his family in his homeland and brought him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is his captor. And now Daniel is saying, I wish this calamity wouldn't fall on you because I want you to prosper. I want you to be well. But this dream is about you, Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to tell him about what's going to happen to him, that he's not humbling himself. And, and we're going to get there in this series. We're going to talk about, about Daniel chapter 4. But Daniel... He was, he was honoring those who were in authority over him, and it took a lot of humility. It took humility to humble himself and say, I know that you're my captor. I know that you have ill intentions for me, but I'm going to seek your best anyway. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Some of you are going to hate this scripture, because I hate this scripture sometimes too. But it's from the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, as to the supreme authority, or to governors. Verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Listen, we don't submit to authority uh, when, when they're asking us to oppose what God has asked us to do already, when it goes against our core convictions, but we submit to authority because God has positioned those people in authority. Some of you might not agree with that, but this is what the Bible says, that Daniel chapter 1 says that the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the right to come in and overthrow the king of Judah. The Lord allowed for that to happen and put Nebuchadnezzar in power. The Lord is in control of who is in control. And we're called to submit, as hard as it may be, to submit under authority, unless it goes against our core convictions. But the goal isn't to be right. The goal is to have influence. The goal isn't to be right. The goal is to have influence. Being right and being righteous are not the same thing. When people think of you, do they think that you're the person who always has to be right, the one with the last word? Or do they think that you're the person who respects everyone, who loves the church, fears God, and honors the government. Seek influence. We're called to seek influence. Seek the prosperity of the world around us. When we get influence, we gain trust. We gain trust when we honor others. Honor requires humility because honor can be given despite whether or not the person is deserving. Just like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. He wasn't deserving of honor, but Daniel gave him the honor anyway. Because Daniel determined in his heart that he was going to be a man of honor and not somebody who gives honor conditionally. The third thing. What was the first thing? Decide before the dilemma. Second thing, seek influence. And the third thing is become good medicine. What do I mean by that? Become good medicine. 
I love what Chris Hodges, he's a pastor of Church of the Highlands, he writes in his book, The Daniel Dilemma, he says this, truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. But truth and grace together are good medicine. It's this tension of living under submission to authority, but also resisting idolatry and critiquing the culture. Having those core convictions in place, knowing where the line is, it's this How do I become good medicine? Because how many of you know, uh, when you taste some medicine, it's pretty bitter, but it's good for you. Imagine if you're a parent and you don't give your child medicine because you're afraid that they're going to be angry at you because it tastes bitter. You don't give them medicine because it tastes good. You give them medicine because you love them, right? You want them to be well. That's what we're called to do is, yeah, sometimes the truth is bitter, Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it's hard to hold that line, to, 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 call, to call people out when they've, reached, when they've crossed that line. But it's good. It's, it's out of love. But you have to have compassion for that person. You have to do it from a place of grace. Truth without a genuine compassion for the person or situation will only distance you from people and leave you with no influence. There's people who will call out complete strangers. They have no investment in that person's life. And they think that somehow by just yelling at them or, just, or, or commenting, hopping in on a Facebook chat and just spitting out your opinion to somebody that you don't even know or hardly know or haven't, talking to year, haven't spoken to for years, if you just give them the truth and then you know, put a link to the nearest article that you find so that they know that you're right, that's going to leave you with no influence. That's going to leave you with no influence because there's no compassion there. It's just about being right. It's not about being righteous. Grace, without the courage to speak the truth, will only enable sin and cause you to appear just like the rest of the world. If you speak grace, 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 and you never address the problem, you just continue letting the people in your life that you love do the things that they're doing, and you never tell them your conviction or tell them this is against what the Word of God is saying, you just enable it. You're just enabling it. And we have to know when to speak out. We have to know when to say something. I will say this. Write this down if you're taking notes. Compassion for people combined with a desire to please God will result in kingdom advancement. Compassion for people and a desire to please God. God comes first. I want to please God, but I have a heart for people. And so I'm going to tell them the truth because I love them. I'm going to tell them out of a place of grace because I want them to be changed by God. But it's hard to know when to speak out courageously, isn't it? It's hard to know when to say something, when to draw the line, because every relationship is so different, and there's no one-size-fits-all, right? The way that you talk to your children is different than you talk to your neighbor. And there's different, there's different things at stake. A relationship with your children, that's high stakes, right? A relationship with somebody that you barely know, that's not, that's not so high of stakes, right? So you have to know when to speak out, and I got a couple, here's a couple questions that I hope will help uh, knowing when to speak out. It's the first thing you need to ask when, when you're wondering if you should be good medicine at this point. Should I speak out? Should I give them some medicine right here? The first question you need to ask is, who is this person? Do I have influence in this person's life? Will my words sever the relationship, and is that a risk that God is asking me to take? I'm afraid to speak out because I'm afraid I'm going to lose this relationship. But is God asking you to trust him with that? To trust that everything's going to be okay? 
or trust that he's going to handle it from there. But you have to ask yourself first, who is this person? Do I have influence in this person's life? How far can I go with this person before they just reject me and ignore me and call me a bigot and just like everybody else in the world? The second question you can ask yourself is, what is the setting? Is this an appropriate place to speak the truth? Should, should I maybe have a private conversation with them, or is God asking me to make this a public demonstration? What do I do? What's the setting? The third question is, what do I feel for this person? Are your words motivated by compassion, or are they fueled by anger and frustration? I'm going to give this person the truth because I've had it with this person. They need to be quiet. I'm just going to unfollow them. (laughs) Is this a righteous anger that you're feeling? What is it that you're feeling for this person? So, as exiles, we're called to decide before the dilemma. Develop those core convictions in yourself before the problem comes, before you're asked to respond to something. Decide before the dilemma. Seek influence. Humble yourself under the authority, not because of anything except that you are going to be a person of honor, but you ultimately want to seek influence. What happened to Daniel when he stood by his convictions and said, I will not eat this food? What happened to him? He succeeded in the test of 10 days, and he was given influence. They took away all the food and wine from everybody else and said, just give them what Daniel was eating. Look at that guy. He is the one to follow. He is the one to model our lives after. He was given influence when he humbled himself, when he stood by his convictions. He was given influence. The third thing we're called to do is to become good medicine, to not be afraid to give the truth, but do it with compassion. Do it with grace. Church, I want to close with this, with this thought that I want to reemphasize that it's not us versus them. It's not us versus Babylon. And when we, we can get stuck in this mindset because we live in such a polarized culture that, that if you have an opinion and it doesn't agree with my opinion, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And it's, this becomes this us versus them mentality. The way of the exile is to be this attitude that I am here to seek your prosperity. I want you to succeed. I want you to succeed. So the Lord's, Jeremiah says to pray to the Lord for your country. Pray to the Lord for those people in your life to seek their prosperity, to seek their peace, that they would benefit. That's the way of the exile. Learning how to live in a culture that doesn't care about God. Learning how to live godly in a godless culture. Church, let's stand together. We're going to close in prayer. I know that was a lot, but let's ask the Lord just to solidify it in our hearts and just to let it sink deep. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us an example in Scripture for what it looks like to live godly in a godless world. Lord, would we become people just like Jesus was, that sought the prosperity of the city and our nation and prayed for it. Not prayed for its destruction, but prayed for its prosperity. And God, that they would see the truth, that would see the light, and that the right people would go into power. But God, you are ultimately in control. You are ultimately sovereign. Help us to live as individuals the way that you've called us to live. Follow Jesus the way that you've called us to follow him. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And the church said... Amen. God bless you, church. Next week, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. 
And so I will see you then. Feel free to get some coffee and some donuts. We'll see you next week.